right. Good to see you all. It's actually been a few weeks since I've seen some of you because we had, um, well, the first weekend of the month, I think we had home worship in the three locations across Melbourne. So I got to see some of you, but not all of you. And then last weekend I was away because I was at Avondale for um, the Empower Ministerial Convention, which happens once every five years, where all the Seventh-day Adventist pastors in Australia gather together for professional development. And I really appreciated how Roy was one of the few pastors not there because he was holding down the fort at home and at church, and so I really appreciate uh, Roy being able to do that. Because it was a really great week. I didn't sleep much, but it was fantastic. <laughs> we had um, wonderful speakers and networking and um, lots of resourcing. And one of the books that um, we received was this one. This book uh, that I read on their plane ride back from Newcastle um, called God Really by Harold Giesebrecht, who is a church planter and a pastor in Norway, as well as a dean of the Norwegian Bible Institute. And um, as I was reading it, it had a lot of really interesting points, but actually, ironically, the part that inspired my sermon for today was actually the epilogue, which was not written by the author, but by someone else that he was quoting. And he was quoting a gentleman who is uh, also in Norway named Wider Ersitz. And he had written an editorial for um, a magazine called, uh, an Adventist magazine Norway. And he had written this article called The Point of Christianity, where he posed the question, why be a Christian? And he explores how, you know, the many kind of, I guess, motivations for why people become Christians. And he questioned, you know, do we become Christian because we want to get to heaven? Do we become Christian because we want to live a good moral life? And then he goes on to talk about how actually, and I'm sure you feel the same way, there are many non-Christians who live good moral lives. We, we know personally many non-Christians who live very ethical lives, who are doing all that they can to help others. And so he poses this question, what does it mean to be a Christian? What is the real difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? And so he writes, to become a Christian is to respond to the call of God. But what is exactly what is it exactly that he calls us to? Then he quotes 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9, God who has called you into fellowship with his son Jesus Christ our Lord is faithful. He writes, we are called to fellowship with him. This means that the main reason to become a Christian is fellowship with God. Jesus himself tells us that the first and greatest commandment is to love God, which encourages, encourages a relationship with him. This relationship will often have consequences for how one chooses to live. And then he says, but the real difference between Christians, human ethicists, and atheists is not one's lifestyle, but the friendship and fellowship with Jesus that Christians enjoy. Non-Christians can be just as good as Christians and have just as good an understanding of morals. They can love both selflessly and altruistically, but they have no friendship with God and are not motivated by a relationship with him. That is the tiny, enormous difference. One of the church fathers summarized the point of Christianity in one single sentence. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And that's a quote by Augustine, who was one of the early Christian theologians. So 
I found this epilogue in the book. You know, like I said, the whole book is interesting, but it was this epilogue, and it was that sentence that struck me. And you know, I've been kind of thinking about it the whole week, and therefore the sermon. This idea that the real difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not our lifestyle, right? It's not our doctrines. It's not our beliefs. It's not our worldview, but it's our friendship with Jesus. And I was struck by this statement because I think it's precisely the lack of such a friendship with Jesus that makes so many Christians bad witnesses to the world. And that creates toxic pictures of God that leads to all kinds of abuse and ultimately turn people away from Christianity and God himself. Because if we merely accept the fact that God exists, that he is the creator and the sustainer and and judge and savior, and we can have all these beliefs about him, but if we don't know him personally, then we are sharing religion, not faith. We're calling people to join an institution, not the body of Christ. And no longer then that our witness does not draw people to Jesus. And no wonder that we feel so restless and distant from God. Because knowledge about God and activity for God is not the same thing as friendship with God. You can know who God is and you can believe things about him, but instead of feeling worship and love, you might feel nothing or even anxiety or even hatred. There's a verse found in James chapter 2, verse 19 that is quite astonishing if you just pause and think about it. James is writing to a group of believers in the first century, and he says, you believe that there is one God. Great. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Demons, that is, angels who once used to worship at God's throne, but since then have rebelled and now undermined God's authority and reputation. Guess what? These demons, they, they know that God exists. And they, they acknowledge that God is powerful. They have witnessed him creating the world. They saw the miraculous birth of Jesus. They witnessed the life and ministry of Jesus. And they saw Jesus give his life on the cross. And they saw his resurrection and his ascension to heaven. They know that Jesus is in heaven with God the Father, ministering on our behalf. They know all of this. And yet, they don't have friendship with God. And that's what makes them fallen angels. And the question that remains for us is, do we have a friendship with God? You're all here when you could be out enjoying the weather or doing the one of many million things that's happening in Melbourne today. So clearly you care about prioritizing your relationship with God. But allow me to challenge you and myself a little bit further today. How is your friendship with God? There's many kinds of friendships, aren't there? There are the friends that you spend time with casually, You see them once in a while. You enjoy their company. But then there are the friends that you share deeper intimacy with. Those that you actually share about your your fears, your joys, your struggles. The people that you're willing to be vulnerable with. And then there are the ones, the really special one or two, if you're lucky, people in your life who know you better than you know yourself. People who have journeyed with you through the valleys and the mountaintops. People who might be your siblings or your spouse or your best friends. People you know 
will be with you no matter what. My question for you is, where is Jesus in that spectrum of friendships? Is he even on the friendship line? Or is he an acquaintance? A friend of a friend? How can we deepen our friendship with Jesus so that we can actually get and experience the point of Christianity? Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, where it says, God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. What does the word fellowship mean? I've been calling it friendship, but the, you know, the original word fellowship, the Greek word is koinonia for anyone who cares, it means communion, it means community, it means communication, sharing, engaging with, partnership. Okay? Those are all the possible definitions of this word. In other words, God is inviting us into a personal relationship with him where we can have open and honest communication, where we can have community, right? It's not just dialogue. It's, it's an intimate dialogue. It's, it's a community where you are enjoying each other's fellowship, enjoying each other's presence. There's a trust there. There's a partnership. There's a purpose. Jesus, when speaking to his disciples, said in John chapter 15, verses 13 to 17, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. And no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. And this is my command, love each other. Have you ever been in a school setting, maybe back in primary school, where you had to be chosen? And what I mean is, I distinctly remember um, in my primary school, in PE class, we played kickball. I don't, I don't know if you play kickball here, but you can, you can substitute that with any other sport. And the PE teacher would choose two captains, and those two captains would then select who they wanted in, on their team from the rest of the class. So then we would stand there, and the two captains would start calling people's names. Oh, I want you on my team. And then the other captain would get to choose someone else to be on their team. And I would be standing there knowing that I would be one of the last ones chosen. <laughs> so you're squirming and embarrassed, and you're just hoping, please don't let me be the very last one. <laughs> and if you were at least, you know, second or third to the last, you were lucky. But inevitably, somebody had to be the very last one chosen, and you knew that you were not actually chosen at that point. You were just the leftover, right? Automatically, you went into someone's team because you were the last to go. And Jesus is, sa is saying in this passage, hey, you didn't choose me. You might not have prioritized me in your schedule. You might not be uh, sharing about me because you're embarrassed. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I have called you my friend. This is the creator of the universe who has poured out his life for us and, and what's more, he loops us in. He says, I'm not keeping anything from you. I want to tell you the secrets of the universe. I want to tell you the plan of salvation. He leans in to us and he says, I've called you my friend. And the question is, do we want to accept his friendship? 
so that when we actually spend time with him and talk to him and listen to him and engage with him and partner with him, we then are able to love one another and expand that friendship circle to those outside. So how do we grow in our friendship with Jesus? And of course, the best way to do that is through personal prayer. Now, prayer in general is a great way to communicate with God. But I'm talking about personal prayer time. Not the prayer you have in groups, not the prayer you have at church, but personal prayer time with God where you are completely alone with Him. Where no one else sees, where no one else hears, and no one else knows that you're even doing this, right? Because no one knows what's going on in your head. No one sees what you're doing in private. You are the only one who knows where you are in your friendship with God. You are the only one who knows the last time you talked with Jesus all alone. The truth is, we can all fake it to a point. Our past spiritual experiences and our ability to do, to do spiritual activity might make us look spiritually fruitful. But ultimately, without that personal prayer time with God, we don't have the roots that no one else can see, those roots underneath the ground that it, only you know about, that when the storms of our lives come, it's the roots that will keep us grounded. Prayer, says William Carey, secret, fervent, believing prayer lies at the root of all personal godliness. Warren Worsby, um, one of my favorite commentators, writes, No Christian rises any higher than his or her prayer life. The hidden life of prayer is the secret of an open life of victory. And another one of my favorite writers, Ellen White, wrote, Prayer is the breath of the soul, the channel of all blessings. As the repentant soul offers its prayer, God sees its struggles, watches its conflict, and marks its sincerity. He has his finger upon its pulse, and he takes note of every throb. Not a feeling thrills it, not an emotion agitates it, not a sorrow shades it, not a sin stains it, not a thought or purpose moves it of which he is not cognizant. That soul was purchased at an infinite cost and is loved with a devotion that is unalterable. Prayer unites us to one another and to God. Prayer brings Jesus to our side and gives new strength and fresh grace to the fainting, perplexed soul. And E.M. Bounds, who has written many books on prayer, he wrote, He who is too busy to pray will be too busy to live a holy life. Ouch. I don't know about you, but this stings me also. Because one theme that has emerged, you know, throughout the seven days at our ministerial convention over and over and over again was how pastors too can be so busy doing service for God and doing spiritual activity and reading our Bibles to prepare Bible studies and to write sermons to, that we also neglect that personal prayer time with God. It's so easy to do. And over and over again, the testimonies and the sharing reminded us that no one is below this temptation to neglect that personal prayer time. And like I said, it's easy to coast along for a while, right? Because, you know, there are some people you can be friends with who you don't see for a long time, and, and, and you can pick it up back where you left off. But the reality is that 
if, if that time and that distance increases, eventually you have no idea what's going on in that person's life. And sure, there is still that affection. Sure, you can pick it back up. But you're missing out on so much of that person's life. They're missing out on so much of your life. You're both missing out on being able to support each other. And that friendship um, is not as deep as it can be. When we neglect that personal, regular prayer time with God, our souls become restless, as Augustine has said. Our hearts are restless. Our souls become dry. Our minds feel far from God. We need that personal, private time with Jesus where we can tell him not what we think he wants to hear and not what we often say when we're praying with other people, but what we're really thinking and feeling. I find it very helpful to pray out loud in my personal prayer time with God. Because I don't know about you, but when I pray in my head, I get really distracted, right? A thought will come or a sound will happen and I lose my, my conscience of thought. So I actually like to pray out loud. And so it, it's good that I'm alone because, you know, um, other, other people might think I'm crazy or might, might wonder what I'm saying. So I like to pray when I'm driving all alone, right? Because I can pray out loud to God. Um, I like to pray when I'm alone in the house, which happens once in a while, or I will go out for a walk where I can pray out loud, um, you know, on the Mary Creek Trail or somewhere where I can be a bit more remote from other people and I can pray out loud to God. And when I talk to God, I talk to Him knowing that He is the one person in your life who literally will never leave you. And you know how when you talk to someone, you wonder, is this person getting tired of me talking about the same thing all the time? I don't know if you've ever wondered that, right? Like you know you're going through something that um, you've gone through before, and you know your friend loves you, but there is still that, that back of the mind, the thought, am I talking about this too much? Are they getting sick of me talking about this? But here's the thing about God. God will never get sick of us talking to him. Once again, Ellen White says in her book, Steps to Christ, Keep your wants, your joys, your sorrows, your cares, and your fears before God. You cannot burden him. You cannot weary him. His heart of love is touched by our sorrows and even by our utterances of them. Take to him everything that perplexes the mind. Nothing is too great for him to bear, for he holds up the worlds. He rules over all the affairs of the universe. Nothing that in any way concerns our peace is too small for him to notice. There is no chapter in our existence too dark for him to read. There is no perplexity too difficult for him to unravel. No calamity can befall the least of his children. No anxiety harass the soul. No joy cheer. No sincere prayer escape the lips of which our Heavenly Father is un unobservant or in which he takes no immediate interest. He heals the broken heart and binds up their wounds. Psalm 147 verse 3. The relationship between God and each soul are as distinct and full as though there were not another soul upon the earth to share his watch care, not, not another soul for whom he gave his beloved son. In other words, she says, hey, guess what? You might not have chosen Jesus, but Jesus has chosen you. And you might not have time for Jesus, but Jesus has time for you. Even if there are a billion people in the world, well, more than, right? Billions of people in the world, when you talk to God, God listens to you with his undivided attention. No matter how small your anxiety 
no matter how many times you brought the same things before him. No matter how crazy your thoughts. And in fact, the more honest you are, the better he likes it. Right? Your prayers don't have to be formal. You don't have to filter. You can tell him exactly what you're thinking. You can argue with him. And I love the book of Psalms and the book of Job and, and the other um, examples in the Bible of, of, of men and women who pray. Because they didn't just tell him what he wanted to hear. They didn't just say, thank you for this day. Please be with me. No, their prayers said, God, you are my enemy. Job said that to God. He said, God, you are my enemy. Why is why are all these bad things happening to me? And And the psalmist cried out to God. And it's actually hard for us to read because of how honest it is you know um there there are some psalms psalm 35 for example 59 and and 107 where where the psalmist is crying out about the injustice that he has suffered at the hands of his enemies and he's like i hope they die and he says god strike them dead and you know these are not great sentiments that we should adopt but it's showing you the honest feelings of a person who feels unjustly accused right it's showing us the unfiltered feelings of someone who's able to pray to God. And so those examples are there for us to show us there's nothing you could say to God that will shock him. <laughs> there's nothing that we can express to God that will annoy him. God wants us to come to him with our honest, unfiltered feelings and thoughts, worries and desires. God gives us his full attention. But we often complain that God doesn't seem to answer our prayers. We stop praying because we're not seeing immediate results. But here's the thing about prayer. Because sometimes we might wonder, well, if God knows all things, why do we have to tell him? And that's because we don't understand that prayer is not about God opening up you know, his magic drawers to answer our prayers. Prayer is about deepening that friendship with God. And so a lot of times, yeah, it's true, God doesn't change our circumstances immediately because God is actually there to listen to us. He's there to build that trust with us. He wants us to be able to trust him and come to him and be vulnerable with him so that in time we realize that prayer is not there to change God's mind. Prayer is there to change our minds. Prayer is there to transform our hearts so that as we unburden our hearts to Him, He's able to give us His peace to endure the trials. He's able to give us strength to go through our circumstances. He's able to give us that change in perspective to love our enemies. He does perform miracles in answers to prayer sometimes, but more than that, He wants us to know that we are not alone. And that is actually enough. A new book was published last month called The Good Life and How to Live It, Lessons from the World's Longest Study on Happiness, written by Robert Waldinger and Mark Schultz. Now these two are the directors, the, the latest directors, of the longest, the world's longest study on happiness. So the Harvard Study of, of Adult Development is what this study is called studied some 700 people and their families over 75 years. Okay? This is the world's longest um, study on 
happiness. And they, and they did this study to figure out the question, what does it mean to live a good life? What does it mean to be happy? And they asked thousands of qualitative questions every two years to these 700-some people over 75 years. And every five years, they did a quantitative health measurement from brain scans to blood works, you name it. And these individuals participate in this for their entire lifetimes. There's apparently about 12 still remaining alive to this day of this study. And so the study has concluded, and now these directors have written a book that was published last month about the good life. And so what's the conclusion? Ruining the ending, but there's a lot you can learn still. But this is what they conclude. We learned, right, after 75 years studying 700-some families of all different kinds of socioeconomic backgrounds, we learned that people who believe happiness is something they can achieve, uh, sorry, we learned that people believe happiness is something they can achieve. If they buy that house or get a promotion or lose enough weight, then happiness will follow. We act as if it is a destination we will get to if we tick the right, right boxes. But the data very clearly shows that this is simply not true. And that's a good thing. As contentment is no longer something out of reach, but eminently achievable for all of us. And then they say over and over, over these 75 years, our study has shown that the people who fare the best were the people who devoted their lives to their careers, who achieved great success in their field. No. They were people who leaned into relationships with family, with friends, with community. Good relationships keep us happier and healthier, period. And one of the examples he gave was that when they measured the cholesterol levels of people in their 50s, right, that was not what determined whether they had illnesses when they were 80. What they found was if in their 50s they felt like they had good relationships, people they could trust, people they could talk to, that that was the greatest indicator of long life. And um, even, you know, when it came to brain scans and memory loss and all that. So read the book. Um, there's lots to learn there. But no wonder when I look at this study, when I look at this, you know, and, and I've seen this kind of study on happiness and health and all that done over and over again. And every time, they always come to the same conclusion, right? That at your deathbed, you're not wishing you had spent more time at the office. At your deathbed, you're not wishing you had finished one more project. No, it's always at your deathbed that you wish you could have spent more time with the people you loved. No wonder God calls us into a relationship with him instead of just being a miracle worker. Because he doesn't want to just solve our problems. He wants to teach us what it means to be a friend. He wants to teach us what it means to be in a personal relationship so that we would experience true happiness, lasting peace, purposeful lives, so that no matter what our circumstances, right, no matter what our challenges, we have that connection with God. We have that friendship with God. That no matter who might desert us, no matter who might pass away, no matter what friendships we lose over the years, that we always have that strong connection with the one who always calls us friend. No wonder personal prayer is such an essential component of spiritual growth. Because it's only when we are personally talking with God, listening to Him, arguing with Him, that we can develop that friendship that becomes our anchor through life's ups and downs. 
because you can know a lot about someone. For example, Bill and Melinda Gates. You know, you can learn a lot about them if you go on the internet and and you look up their lives and their biographies and interviews. You might even be able to work for them in their companies or in their foundation. You might be a big fan of theirs and talk about them all the time. But unless you actually talk to Bill and Melinda Gates personally, you're not their friend. You can believe in God, know a lot about God, serve God, talk about God to others. But unless you are spending personal time in prayer with God, are we truly His friends? And it's only in knowing Him personally that we can experience true peace and purpose and happiness. Like the editorial said in the beginning, it is friendship with God that is the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. So let me ask you again: How is your friendship with Jesus? I don't know about you, but it's like something that I want to make more of a priority in my life. So how do we do that? It could be as simple as just setting your alarm every day on your phone as a reminder to pray. And you choose. Some people are are early birds. I I know someone who wakes up at five o'clock every day, and um, that person she's writing a, a fiction book at the moment, and she sets her alarm five o'clock, and every morning she writes. Because she's committed to it, and I'm like, I'm also trying to write a book at the moment. I'm like, nope, I'm not doing it at five o'clock in the morning. I do mine sometimes, or I try to, um, at night, right? Everyone's gone to bed, and the house is quiet, and I can, I can write because I'm a night owl. But maybe for you, it's, it's you know, middle of the day, um, at Avondale University Church where I worshipped last Saturday. I saw that they're doing a one at one, so at one p.m. every day. They're asking everyone to pray, so that they can be one with God and one with each other. You pick the time. It could be 5 a.m. It could be 1 p.m., 10 p.m. Whatever works for you. But the idea is having that consistent time with Jesus, where it's just you and Him. If you're not sure what to pray about, the Australian Union is starting 10 days of prayer starting today, ending on the 27th of February. And they have put together daily readings and reflection questions for you to pray through. You can scan the QR code to join that if you'd like. But it doesn't have to be complicated, right? You you choose something that works. You can do a Bible reading plan, and 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 I guess you know reading the Bible is one thing, but I, I want to encourage us to talk to God, right? To talk to Him as 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 you would talk to a friend or a, a family member or someone you trust. Just talk to Him. Tell Him what you're we're thinking about. Tell him what you are sick of. Tell him what's making you mad. Just talk to God and seek Him. And the promise of God is this: in Jeremiah chapter twenty-nine, verse twelve to fourteen. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And that is the promise of God. It is my prayer that we may discover a best friend in Jesus, and it is my prayer that that friendship with Him becomes the focal point of our Christianity, of our church, and our witness here in Melbourne. May God bless you as you become friends with Jesus. Let's pray together to close. Dear Heavenly Father, 
So many times we have forgotten what the point of Christianity is. Help us to return to its core, to build a personal relationship with you. I want to pray that for those of us who perhaps have neglected it for a long time or perhaps have never done it for the first time, that you would remind us and encourage us this week to make that time, to set aside uh, a consistent time, a regular time where we can talk to you so that you can minister to us, so that we can deepen that relationship and really experience true peace and happiness. Father God, I want to pray for those who are really struggling with various challenges this week, that in our circumstances we would experience, I guess, the peace the world cannot give by leaning into that promise you have made that you will never leave or forsake us, that we are not alone. And Father, I pray that as we um, expand that friendship to those outside of our community, that they would come to know you as well, that they be drawn to you, and that as you're lifted up, that you would transform our hearts and our lives and our communities so that we can truly be a positive impact in this world. We pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.